We're looking this morning at the subject of the hurt of wrong choices. And our text is from the book of Joshua, chapter 24. If you look at your bulletin outline, you'll see that the first point is that God's sovereignty does not negate human choices. This is a good thing for us to learn. We are Christians who believe in the biblical doctrines of election and predestination and the immutable degrees of God. And as such, we are sometimes accused, we are accused of teaching that mankind cannot and does not make choices commensurate with free will. Nothing could be further from the truth when we understand freedom in its biblical context. If, for example, freedom is defined as I can do what I want, when I want, the way I want, and no one can stop me, not even God, then yes, that definition is absurd since we are claiming for ourselves as creatures what only God can do as creator and Lord. No one has freedom like that except God. Such is a form of sinful idolatry because in such men are attributing to themselves what God alone has the power to do. We could say it this way. None of our choices in life are free from the knowledge of, the direction of, and the consequence of God. Yet have we not seen in recent weeks several assertions by sinners in the scriptures in which they claim an independence from God which is contrary to reality. The psalmist describes the abuses of the wicked and more importantly their philosophy on why they do what they do. And this is what he writes. They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. So that would be orphans, right? And they say, now here it is, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Take heed, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplined nations not punish? Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they, are futile, those thoughts. Psalm 94, verses 4 through 11. So, here's, you, you can see the arrogance coming through. They do all these wicked things, and then they say things like, well, God doesn't see. He, he pays no attention, and so forth. Another psalm, number 10, that has a similar theme with a slightly uh, different twist to it. The psalmist says of the wicked... He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and I'll never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are on his tongue. 
He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. And he says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Psalm 10, verse 6 through 11. Now, you see, he, the wicked bring two accusations against God in this text. First accusation is, God did see, but he has forgotten what he saw. So, I'm safe. I'm safe. Accusation number two, God covers his face, and in so doing, he chooses not to see. So again, I'm safe. See how, how he gets through this in his mind's eye. Now my question is, who in their right mind would strip God of all those attributes which define him? Omnipresence, that God is everywhere you are or can be. And omniscience, the fact that God knows everything there is to know about everything that can be known. Well, the psalmist in Psalm 139 addresses those two objections about God. Those false accusations. He writes, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. How well does God know him? You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Oh Lord, you have been hemmed me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Psalm 139, the first six verses. Now in this psalm, the psalmist even postulates several scenarios to drive his point home. Scenario number one, what about distance? Hmm, what about distance? Maybe I can outdistance myself from God. Maybe I can go so fast and so far away that I leave God in the dust and he can't find me. What about that? So he answers, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths or the place of the dead, you're there. If I ride, ride on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. So, what's he saying? He's saying, Think of every direction of the compass. Go ahead. 
It only results in God being there. Why? Because he's omnipresent. Unlike us, God is not spatially confined. That's an attribute of God. Yeah, it's not our attribute, but it's his. Second thing he postulates, well, what about, what about darkness? If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. See, he's talking about hiding. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Psalm 139, verse 11 and 12. He's talking about, is there a way that I could hide from God's sight. We know that if we want to hide from men, the darkness is a plus. It'll help us hide. A lot of crimes, most of the crimes are probably done at night under the cover of darkness. So he postulates this. Well, I can't outdistance myself from God. Maybe I can hide from God. And then he answers his own question. And he's talking about God's omniscience. God always sees even the blackest darkness cannot impair his vision or his perception. He knows all. And that's the point of this psalm. Now, if these things are true of God, if his attributes are supernatural, as the Bible indicates, how is it that there are people who say such stupid things as we have read in some of these texts? God doesn't see, God doesn't hear, God doesn't know. It is rather stupid to say those things or to believe those things or to pattern your life on the premise of those things. God answers in Psalm 50, but to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instructions. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brothers and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. Here it is now. You thought I was altogether like you. There's the problem. We think God is like us. So we make God into our image. He goes on. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue he who sacrifices thank offerings honors me and prepares the way so that I may show the salvation of God. You need to be thankful is what God is saying to people. You ought not to be arrogant and say that you know, you're not accountable to God or that God is just like me. This is from Psalm 50, verse 16 through 23. Idolatry, folks, is more subtle. It is more subtle than choosing a stump of teak wood and carving a little statuette from it. 
Idolatry is to reduce God to lesser things, to created things, including the creature man. Paul deals with this in Romans 1, verse 21 and following. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks. There it is. There's no thankfulness. And we read about that in Psalm 50. There's no thank offerings that honor God. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they actually became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Idolatry begins with people worshiping themselves and thinking themselves uh, to be God or just as good as God or reducing God to them. And it is utter arrogance and ignorance that would define free choices made by men as free from the knowledge and oversight of God. No man, no woman can choose with that kind of freedom. Such freedom of choice belongs exclusively to God. But with that said, it is nonetheless true that mankind makes free choices in this life. We do it all the time. We all do. We choose what time in the morning we will get up, what time we are going to go to bed. We choose the clothes that we will wear, the food we're going to eat, the car we will drive, the neighborhood in which we're going to live. We choose our friends. We choose the principles upon which we will conduct our lives. There are hundreds of choices that we make daily from the minute decision involving when we're going to get a haircut, to the major issues of life, our philosophy of right and wrong, of good and evil, what we value and what we disdain. We're making choices all the time. And these choices are made freely. That is to say, no one twists your arm, no one forces you to violate your ethics or your principles in these choices. And I would say that even if a despot were to apply torture to try to coerce you to comply with his will, you would still have the choice to give in or to die for what you believe. And historically, many, many people have chosen the latter because it was their choice. Now it is just because we are free in our choices that God holds us accountable for wrong choices, which is the second point in your outline. Our text this morning is a record of Joshua's swan song. He is about to die. But before he does, he gives a farewell address on spiritual values. Now, this, this is a great way to die if God gives you this opportunity. After listing all the ways in which God had aided Israel in conquering Canaan and taking possession of the land, the cities, the vineyards, the farms for which they had not labored, Joshua says in verse 14, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river. River is capitalized. It's referring to the Euphrates. And in Egypt. And serve the Lord. But 
Here it is. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Choose what it's going to be for you, but as far as me and my family, this is my choice. And my choice is this. I'm going to serve the Lord. Now Joshua is drawing a clear line in the sand. And he lays out two options for his people. In one, they can refuse to throw away their traditional idols. They can continue to worship those things. Those idols that never helped them reach the promised land. Just so much silver or gold or whatever it was. Or, option two, they along with Joshua and his household can serve Jehovah the one who fought for them and delivered their enemies into their hands. And guess what? The people heartily affirmed what Joshua had said. God had delivered their foes into their hands. They admit that. He had set the Israelites free from the Egyptian taskmasters. They admit that. By marvelous signs and wonders, he had protected the Israelites in their exodus and in their journey through the wilderness. That said and that acknowledged, the Israelites were nonetheless at a crossroad in their lives. They had to choose that day, says Joshua, whom they would serve, whether idols or the true God of heaven. And they affirmed, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Verse 16. So we read that Joshua erected a stone pillar. And he says in verse 27, It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. And to their credit, we read in verse 31, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. But you know, folks, it didn't last. It didn't last. The next book after Joshua, Judges, chapter 2, verse 10 says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, that is, after that whole generation died off, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. By the way, as a side note, that shows parental failure right there. That shows pastoral failure. Their teachers didn't teach them their histories, the law of God, the word of God. They just let it slide. So you have a new generation that doesn't know anything about these things. Reading on, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. That's a word, uh, idol. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth, two of the main idols that has plagued Israel throughout its history. Judges 2, verse 10 through 13. So it didn't last. They went back to idolatry. The period of the judges was a roller coaster ride between the high point of serving God and the low points of going back into idolatry. If you, read, if, the, if you want a synopsis of the book of Judges, that's it. Up, then down. Up, then down. 
Scripture says whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of all the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But, listen to this now, when the judge died, the people returned. They returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Judges 2, verse 18 and 19. So this is the whole pattern through the book of the Judges. It is clear here that these were free will choices made by the people. They had godly judges who would lead them and warn them against apostasy, but they forsook God anyway. God attributed this to their evil practice that is preferred to living a holy life, which the Lord would require it of them, to their evil practices and their stubborn ways, their personal resistance to what God required from his chosen people and their disposition to do their own thing. And so this is the very synopsis that the author of the book of Judges gives in the very last verse of the book, which reads this way. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Judges 21, verse 25. They were a law unto themselves. They didn't want to be bossed around by godly judges, nor by God himself. They wanted to choose their own path, even if the path was evil. So here then, brethren, we begin to see a biblical definition of freedom of choice when we talk about men. It's characteristic by who and what they are by nature. We may fairly speak of people exercising their free will so long as we speak of a freedom that is complementary to their nature. What is their nature? What is our nature as found in creation? How does the Bible depict human nature since Adam's fall into sin? Well, at the very least, we are creatures with a fallen nature. All of us would agree to that. We are not as Adam once was. That is, we're not sinless. We are as Adam has harmed us. That is, sinners by birth inheriting his sinful nature and their sinners by practice. What, if any, are the restrictions or limitations of our nature when it comes to the things of God? Is our new human nature, our sinful human nature, attuned to God? Can it respond aright to the commands of God? Can it choose righteousness over evil, singularity of worship towards God instead of idolatry. Paul answers and speaks of himself, using himself as the example. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot, I cannot, cannot 
carry it out. Romans 7 verse 18. Paul is saying that in his sinful nature, untouched by God, he cannot choose good or do good as defined by God. His nature barricades him from going contrary to that nature and stepping over the line into something spiritually good. He says in the next chapter, Romans 8 verse 8, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Cannot. Jesus said something very similar. And he said it to the religious teachers of his day, the good guys. Here's what he said. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's calling them snakes. <laughs> poisonous snakes. A viper is a poisonous snake. You brood of vipers, how can you, who are evil, say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, verse 33 and verse 34. What is he saying? He's saying they are evil by nature, and that being so, they cannot say anything good. Their speech can only reflect their nature. And as with speech, so it is with every spiritual exercise that God demands of us. Nothing good lives in me, says Paul, that is, in my sinful nature. So let me ask from a biblical point of view. Nothing good lives in my sinful nature. Nothing good. Let me ask some questions. Is it a good thing for people to believe God when he speaks and obey what he commands? Yes. Is it a good thing to repent of our sin, including idle concepts of God? Yes. Is it a good thing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, sent to be the Savior of sinners? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. All these things are good. Okay, then why don't people follow through and do these good things? Answer, they cannot choose to do things which are outside the realm of their sinful nature. No one can make free will choices beyond their natural abilities. Let me read it for you. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Galatians 5 verse 17. Or again from Ephesians 2 verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That is God's wrath. 
God holds us accountable for wrong choices, but apart from God, we can only make wrong choices. We are objects of his wrath, as was Israel in their sin and idolatry. We cannot, while we're saying that man has a free will and he can make choices, he can't exceed or go beyond what he is by nature. So his free choices are going to be in that realm and they're going to be opposite of what God has commanded us to do. Now that brings us to the second point in the outline. What's the remedy for a nature that only makes sinful choices? I mean, it sounds like we're in big trouble here, and we are. Well, the answer is that God has to change our nature. What a terrible predicament to be in. To have the ability of making free will choices, but then to have our wills irrevocably locked into a sinful nature. That means that all of my free will choices will result in choosing things that offend God, defy God, oppose God, and cater to the lusts of my heart and the rebellion of my worldly thinking. God put it this way. Listen to this. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? An Ethiopian is a black man. So God says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard its spots? An implied answer to both of those questions is no, not ever. Is that going to happen? You say, well, what's his point? Here it is. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil, Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Just as it's said in concrete that a black man cannot change the color of his skin, and a leopard cannot get rid of his spots, so you who are evil in nature, you cannot do good. You can't change. Paul said it this way, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Yeah, you can disobey, but that's about, that's about the extent of it. Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2. The spiritually dead follow the prince of death who is Satan. And so long as we are dead in spirit towards God, then our free will choices will always opt for things that oppose God's will, and that results in judgment from God. So what is the solution? Well, we read it earlier from Jesus. Here's the solution. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Matthew 12, verse 33. And already, I can see the wheels turning, and we begin to think, how do you make a tree good? If any of you have done any horticulture and apple trees, pear trees or whatever, things like that, you know, if a tree goes bad, you know what I do with my rotten apple trees? I cut them down, and they become firewood. I can't make a tree good if it's bad. But Jesus says that's what's got to happen. In order for the fruit to be good, you have to make the tree good. 
Jesus knew, and we should too, that commands such as repent of your sin or believe and be saved. These commands fall on deaf ears, worse, on impotent hearts because as he said to the Pharisees, how can you who are evil say anything good? How can you? How can you? That's the question. Where's the ability? The tree has to be made good first. And then from that root will come good choices. Paul writes it this way. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins. Colossians 2. Verse 13. Brethren, the ability to make good and saving free will choices begins at the moment God makes the tree good. And that is at the time that he grants a sinner a new nature. A new nature. We therefore do not choose Christ and receive a new nature. Rather, we receive a new nature and then choose Christ freely based on a nature that is born anew. And that's what the scriptures talk about, being born again. And this being so, when I appeal to sinners from the pulpit to forsake their sin, when I say trust in Jesus' atoning work, trust in the cross, the appeal is not made to their ability, but to their responsibility. They're responsible to God to love Him. They're responsible to God to obey Him. They're responsible to God to submit to Him and so on. Because God is their Creator. He's the Lord of the universe. Through sin, mankind has lost his ability to obey, but not his responsibility to obey. Why? Because sin is of their own doing, not God's. God didn't make you a sinner. God has not lost his ability to command because you, as a sinner, have lost your ability to obey. You say, well, that sounds like sinners are, are completely at the mercy of God. If that's true, yeah, that's precisely the truth. You're at the mercy of God. Let me read it for you. This is from... 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. There it is. Wow. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 21. Through him you believe in God. That's how it happened. Through him. Who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so... Your faith and hope are in God, not in your choices, but in the mercy and the grace of God. What's God doing? He's making the tree good so that it produces good fruit. Some of those things that we read, obeying God, listening to his teaching, accepting Christ, all of those things, they're all good choices, wonderful choices. But they'll only be made by that person whom God changes and gives a new heart. 
Sinful people, that's the second point, make wrong choices and suffer for them, but there's hope and recovery in Christ. That's the gospel, folks. I wish I could say that once we have the new nature from God, all of our free will choices fall on the side of righteousness. But that's not so, and you know it's not so. The reason it's not so is that our old nature has been in the forefront so long that it has trained our hearts and our minds and our thinking to choose sin automatically. We don't think about it. We just automatically go to the sinful decisions of our hearts that we've been using our mind for and our bodies for for all the times that you've been on the earth. We don't have to think about it. What we have to think about is doing righteousness. Sin comes naturally. Righteousness comes from careful thought and planning and deliberate intent. Listen to Paul's exhortation. He says, the night is nearly over. The day's almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Romans 13, verse 12 through 14. ESV says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What's he saying? He's saying righteous living takes planning. Sinful living doesn't take planning. Righteous living doesn't just happen for the believer who has God's spirit indwelling in him. You can either plan to do evil as the wicked do all the time or you can plan to do right as God commands of his holy people. Only now you have the empowerment if you're a believer indwelled by his spirit. So which is it going to be? If you plan and execute sinful choices, yes, you can do that. But then you will suffer the consequences of God's chastening, which will not be pleasant. Believers have a choice. Paul says, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27. And in context... Paul is talking about the com competition of life in which many are in the race hoping to win the prize or they're fighting in the boxing arena hoping to come out on top as the victor. But without discipline, without a plan for righteousness, with but a sloppy, wishy-washy effort to live for God, you lose. And the prize slips through hands and Paul says you know I don't want that to happen to me and he's saying to the Corinthians I don't think you want that to happen to you and in the next chapter 1 Corinthians 10 Paul reiterates what happened to Israel as God's people when they stopped planning for righteousness so I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact brothers that our forefathers 
were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea, talking about the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. God was taking care of them. Christ was there with them. They all enjoyed the food from heaven, the bread from heaven and the water, the living water Christ. Nevertheless, writes Paul. Oh, oh, oh. I can see trouble coming, right? Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 12. No place for arrogance place to trust God and his grace and to plan for righteousness. Brethren, if God judges his professing people in these ways, what will happen to you who are not connected with God whatsoever? Ever thought of that? Peter actually puts it that way. Listen to him. He says it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Whoa. And if he begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Peter is working on this principle. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Make sure that the gospel seed takes root in your heart and sprouts into life, a life of faith and a life of love for God. God will have to give you a new heart to receive the gospel that way. But you know, you can go to God in prayer and you can say, Lord, I can't obey any of your commands. You tell me to repent, I can't do it. What is more, I don't want to do it. I like my sin. That's just being honest with God. But Lord, if what Pastor Luke is saying is true, I want to know you. I want to know your forgiveness. And I need your mercy. Please be merciful to me, the sinner. And what, what a wonderful start that is. What a wonderful place to begin. May I say, it's the only place to begin. Because until that new nature comes and your new thinking comes, you won't make right choices. You won't choose for God. You'll continue to choose for the sinful nature. That'll be your free will choice. 
free in that sense that you made it. But the Bible talks about us being slaves to our nature. So we can't break loose from the slavery until God's power comes into our lives through Jesus Christ. May that be true of you today, and if not, it can begin today through repentance and faith. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. It's humbling, it is, to understand that uh, while we have freedom of choice, we won't make good choices because our nature is sinful. It's sinful by birth. We inherited that from Adam. It's also sinful by choice because we like our sin. We love the lusts of our hearts. We want to do what we want to do. It's a very interesting thing that we don't love holy things. Isn't that true? We don't, Lord. We love wicked things. And that shows where our nature really is. No one relishes the idea of being holy like God is holy, being righteous like God is righteous. Those are the things that are on our downside. We don't want those. We don't want to pursue them at all. And that those things tell on us. They tell where we are spiritually. So we're asking you that this morning, for any here that are outside of Jesus Christ and his saving mercy, that they can start there and just confess that to God and ask for his mercy and ask for his grace. May you do that because you desire the thanksgiving, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And we will be thankful. Sinners are thankful when you come into their lives and give them a new nature and a new heart. For we who are ready Christians, help us to understand that even so, good and godly choices are not automatic. We have to plan for righteousness. We have to choose what it, we have a choice. The unbeliever doesn't have a choice. He's always gonna choose evil, but we believers have a choice. We can choose for God, or we can slip back into our old ways of thinking and doing and we can choose sin. Help us to choose righteousness, to plan for righteousness, to order our lives in such a way that righteousness and thanksgiving will be the forefront. And when we sin, forgive us in Jesus Christ, through whose name we pray. Amen. Our closing.